Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Foles to talk about how they recorded and produced the albums Everything Not Saved Will Be Lost, parts one and two. Foles are a British rock band consisting of vocalist and lead guitarist Yanis Philippakis, rhythm guitarist Jimmy Smith, keyboardist Edwin Congreve, and drummer Jack Bevan. The band formed in the mid-2000s after meeting while playing in different groups in Oxford. Their initial formula of off-balance indie rock with new wave and atmospheric post-rock influences proved successful, and their debut album Antidotes, released on Transgressive Records and produced by Dave Sitek, went gold in the UK. In 2010, their second album, Total Life Forever, was nominated for the Mercury Prize, and with each successive album, their audience and critical acclaim has grown, culminating in 2019 with Everything Not Saved Will Be Lost Part 2 hitting number one in the UK album charts. Over the years, Foles have gained a reputation as one of the UK's greatest live bands, with frontman Yanis famous for diving into crowds and climbing around venues. Now, with six albums under their belt, numerous NME and Brit Award wins, they have firmly established themselves at the head of the UK music scene. Today, for the first time because of COVID-19, I'm at home in southwest London, and Yanis joins me from 123 Studios in southeast London to talk about how everything not saved will be lost, parts one and two were recorded and produced. And what better way to start that conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is The Runner. It is The Runner by Foles from Everything Not Saved Will Be Lost Part 2, one of the two albums that we'll be delving into with a little help from Yanis of Foles himself, who is somewhere in Peckham. Hello, Yanis. Hello, John. How are you? Yeah, good. You're in Peckham. I'm elsewhere in southwest London, in Morden, to be precise. Uh, but we're connected together in a time when otherwise we would have been in the same place. But you're actually sitting above the studio that you recorded both of those albums am i right yeah that's right yeah uh 123 studios in peckham like near the main high street and yeah it's a it's a place where i originally just rented a little writing room for myself out probably about three years ago now and um having completed touring what went down and just wanted a space to make some music and where um i could get out of the house so got a little room with no windows and uh, borrowed somebody's computer and somebody's mic and preamp and then uh, started writing the demos for what became Everything Not Saved Will Be Lost, which we also recorded in the same space. 
Yeah, and this was quite a new route for you to take in the sense that you were taking control of everything. You know, you'd worked with some great producers in the past, be they Flood or James Ford or Dave Sitek, um, but by this time you decided we're going to take control. Yeah, I think it was something that um, had been discussed in the band like for a while in the sense of feeling as impressed as we were by every producer that we'd worked with and, and as happy as we were with the albums. We always felt that um, through allowing somebody else into the process that something else was lost and um, that uh, we wanted on this album to try and have a kind of concentrated capturing of what it sounds like from the initial stages and just with less kind of external interference. So largely through Jack, our drummer's um, insistence, actually, uh, that we kind of at least start the process without any producers or without any discussion of producers and just see where we, we get to. And so that's how the record started taking shape. Yeah. And so was there a sense of trepidation about that? Or did you feel excited about the possibilities? Um, I felt definitely a bit nervous about it because I already, like, you know, when we make our records it can be pretty intense i think uh the producer plays a really important role uh both psychologically and obviously sonically and keeping the momentum going in when we're in the studio and so uh the removal of that person out of the process did worry me i thought the album might end up in a huge blazing row and or that it would prematurely age me which um maybe, maybe it did the <laughs> latter a bit but yeah yeah but clearly i mean it proved productive in that you ended up with two albums worth of material yeah i think the great benefit of it was being able to explore ideas with you know with freedom so we didn't have any sort of time pressure we didn't feel that we were on anybody else's clock or that somebody was uh, making value judgments about ideas in their early stages in their infancy so we could we could go down the wrong road for a long time at our own expense you know and sometimes by making those decisions to 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 follow up on an idea that um, maybe in a more, let's say, professional sense, a producer may have said, you know, that, that idea is not for exploring right now. Let's concentrate on the main body of the album. But by us following that type of idea, we ended up uh, making two albums in the space of one, as it were. Mm. And, and also just getting to kind of explore ideas that we, that we wouldn't have otherwise. And was there anybody else apart from members of the band involved? I mean, did you have an engineer at hand who could solve those niggly problems that are thrown up by trying to record anything? Yeah, we did. We had a great engineer um, and co-producer, really. You know, I think um, he kind of, he did more than just what an engineer would do. And his name's Brett Shaw. He runs this studio called 123 in South London. Yeah. Yeah, so we I just become kind of friendly with him. And in essence, we said, can we demo some ideas with you? We booked him out for two weeks and that two-week period ended up becoming a kind of year and a half commitment and we kind of ended up taking over his life a little bit like sort of bindweed in the garden but um <laughs> he still i still see him around and he kind of like I'll, I'll ask him a question in the corridor of the studio and he kind of runs in the other direction so that um he doesn't get corralled into to having to, to work through my ideas for another year <laughs> but luckily he was there and willing to to go along with it um to help you because that's often the thing i mean you know for for artists it's always great to be able to take control and, and kind of realise your own vision yourselves. But at the same time, there's a lot of technical know-how and a lot of that can be eased by having somebody who's really interested in that and really on top of that. Yeah, I, I um, you know, in terms of my role specifically, I just kind of wanted to be free to uh, make judgment calls about the Sonics and to 
concentrate on performances and like outboard gear, the toys. You know, I like a lot of um, units and pedals, and I didn't really want to have to think so much about the the nuts and bolts and the more kind of, I guess, the more crucial part sometimes of the production job. Definitely, a lot of that was left to Brett because he knew the space, he knew the mics, and it was it was his environment really. But what it did allow us was to take total control of the kind of aesthetic direction that we wanted the album to go in mm. and also brett's very patient and very kind of he, he he sits back in a way that we we really needed to have this time we didn't want to be um conducted in any way or have somebody with strong you know strong opinions coming in so brett was very respectful and patient with us and allowed us to kind of find our own footing through it yeah yeah so a chance for you to to concentrate on being in charge of proceedings. I mean, would you do it again? Are you, are you ha- I mean, happy with the results? Happy with the process? Uh, yeah, definitely. The, the process was really full on. I mean, definitely towards the latter stages, when everybody else had finished kind of tracking their parts, I was um, left on my own. Me, me and Brett were on, alone and I was doing the bulk of the vocal takes and I was kind of writing lyrics simultaneously and then making some quite crucial kind of production decisions at the end. And that kind of period... I mean, I loved it, but it was also, um, yeah, it was just quite intense. So I don't, you know, there wasn't anything about the the way that we made the album that I wouldn't want to do again, but I would go into it with a kind of probably a bit more caution. Yeah. And I'd try and get a bit more sleep. <laughs> yes. So we're going to look at three tracks today. Um, and the first one we're going to look at is Syrups. And uh, people might know that you worked on the two albums simultaneously, didn't you? You didn't have, you know, the track orders that we're familiar with from the release of the albums aren't necessarily the the order that songs were created or, or the ideas were first laid down. Yeah, we just worked on everything at the same time. So so I guess to, to clarify a few things about the the way that we made the records, I normally write a bunch of loops um, and I write those alone. And up until this album, I'd done it in a very Luddite fashion, um, just using an old Roland Boss pedal, uh, Roland loop pedal, sorry, and often just cassettes and stuff or, you know, phone recordings. And I'd never really used um, a computer to record the ideas. And, and a lot of the albums that we'd made up until then, there'd been certain songs where we'd been sort of chasing a certain bit of magic on either one of these loop recordings or on a certain early phone recording. So one of the main thought process behind approaching the album in this way was we wanted to get into a studio where anything we recorded from the first stage onwards was usable. So with the loops, I was recording into Logic for the first time um, through a preamp. And then anytime we were jamming as a band, there would be a portion of it that would be recorded at all times by Brett. Um, and then once we had a kind of certain amount of the record built up, we would then decamp to a essentially like a rehearsal room um, in another part of London where we would kind of jam out and physicalize the songs that or the ideas that we had started that were captured. And then we kind of formed a feedback loop, as it were, between the studio where we would be recording and then we would go to this other space and then back again. And we did that, maybe that, that kind of shift we probably did five or six times over the year and a half. Yeah. So the first thing I recorded, this was still pre the band kind of getting involved and why I thought this would be a good example of a song is because it started off as a loop. Um, That loop is actually the basis of what you hear on the finished album, but it's almost like that loop was then attacked by the live band in the live space of the rehearsal room. And hopefully it kind of shows how the record was kind of built up in this sort of sedimentary kind of fashion 
where there was the recorded versus the played elements. Yeah. So the original demo of Syrups, I made a little drone on a Minilog keyboard at home and then I brought it into this uh, little writing room I had and I plugged a bass into a germanium chandler, which is a preamp I love and we used on Total Life Forever a lot. And yeah, and I just started riffing the bass line over a drum machine and a loop and that is then what became part of the album so i'll just play the actual original demo that um i don't think anyone really outside of the band's ever heard i mean it sounds quite similar to the finished products but here we go so this is the original loop uh from the mini log So that's um, and that formed the basis for the final song, Syrups. Um, so we literally just sort of imported um, this and used it as the bedrock foundation for then the live playing that occurred over it. Yeah. And I we we actually played some shows in the in between this being recorded, and I would play this backstage after a festival show, and we would all just like bounce around it, and there was a real excitement within the band to get our teeth into it in a physical way. So then the next stage of that really was I dug out from the sort of recesses of an old dusty hard drive this morning. I found um, I found uh, the first time that we then took that that idea into a room with live drums. So Jack on live drums, Jimmy on guitar. I think Edwin was playing the bass line. And then we just jammed over that original loop blaring out of a PA. And I have an old phone recording of it, which I'll play a bit of to you and hopefully... It'll make some sense. Oh, wow, that sounds good. So this is a phone recording of the re the rehearsal in the rehearsal studios. This is a recording from the studio in Oxford where having had the initial demo idea that I'd done on my own, took it in, pumped it through the PA, and then we jammed over it. And then that then was taken back to Peckham and sort of layered over the original demo. Right. If that makes sense. So should I play a bit of it? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. There's a bit of nattering. We might need to. Yeah. I don't know exactly where it starts. Okay, so here's the original. This is coming through the PA in the room in Oxford. Lots of weird little noises that some probably Jimmy's making over the top. And this recording goes on for half an hour, so obviously I won't play it the whole time. And then we wrote the main hook out of it. I think this is the first time we ever played this part now coming up. So this guitar hook that's coming out of the jam then made it into the original song. Cool. So that's that's a bit of the the original jam that we had over the um, the bedrock of the mm. bassline and the and the loop. And then essentially Jack decided to go double speed at a certain point. Um, and then that's what became the sort of second half of the recorded version of Syrup. So Syrups um, on the album, the first half of it is essentially quite faithful to my uh, loop 
um, which I, I wrote with the exception of some vocals and this added guitar part that came in from Oxford. And the second half was definitely this feeling of the band being allowed to attack that idea um, and Jack going double speed, playing quite frenetically. And that, that started in that rehearsal room in, in Oxford, that double time. Yeah, that did, yeah. So, yeah, so basically Syrups for a long time was just on this groove, the sort of half-speed groove. And then um, once we'd taken it to Oxford, we had this idea that it should go double speed at the end, which it does. And that was worked on a lot in Paris as well as in Peckham. So there was a certain point in the album where we took uh, the sessions from Peckham and went over to Paris to work with some producers that I'd worked with, making some uh, songs with Tony Allen and... The producers there are quite like rough and ready and like to sort of deconstruct and attack the sounds like they don't really like polished or safe sounding material. So we took it there to sort of get roughed up and I can play some aspects of that as well. But, the, the, you know, one of the challenges with this song particularly was obviously the first half is sort of to grid as it were, it's to a loop. Mm. And then this, we wanted the second half to be free. So we had to f- record transitions from the from the set part of the song into a free hand, which was quite tricky. And then there's a kind of crossfade that occurs in the song, which I can play a little bit on the al- the album version if you want, and then I can strip it back. Well, yeah, that would you. be fine. I mean, you can, you can yeah, subtract it or, or talk us through what was going on. Okay, so basically the first half of the song is on that kind of uh, more... So this is the crossover between uh, between the half speed section into the double speed. And from now this is kind of introducing in, mainly into Paris. So we have this arpeggiated synth uh, that we did, we ran through a memory moog in Paris. Added with a modular rhythmic loop that we did on a kind of uh, Euro rack thing. And the bass line remains the same, um, but it's a, it is a different take. So as you can see, the bass line is essentially the same as it is in the first half. But the drums have gone double speed. So this is essentially the live band playing. And a lot of this has occurred in Paris. And you kind of arrived to that decision after trial and error, presumably about kind of dipping it down so that you could have the transition because it is very tricky, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, like some of us were a bit on the fence about uh, this idea of going to the double speed section because it just felt like a kind of um, it's a kind of trope that we've done in quite a few songs of flipping to double speed um, and having a big crescendo at the end. So there was some trepidation, but I think the addition of that arpeggiated synth and the rhythmic loop off the modular unit really like tied it all together. And we did some phased guitar with an old original um, MXR90 phaser pedal and the combo of those things, it kind of validated the whole idea rather than it just being like, oh, we're going rock, you know? Mm, um, yeah. So I'll just expose those elements. I mean, you've heard some of them already, but I'll just expose them. Yeah. Um, I'll mute the drums out for a sec. Yeah, we just thought there was something cool and, and like crowty, for want of a better word, for that with that vibe. <laughs> yeah. 
and it just felt like it had a really great energy. The other thing um, that we did that we liked that I thought would just be cool to expose because it's a kind of repeated musical um, theme throughout a lot of the album is the BVs. So I think this record more than any other has a lot of backing vocals. Um, normally Walter would have done them in the past, but obviously he departed before we made this record. So I was kind of forced to um, do most of the BVs and one of the ways in which I wanted it to differentiate from the main like lead vocal, which was actually Brett's idea. Um, Brett has a microphone that's essentially an, a speaker from an NS10, a Yamaha NS10 speaker cone rewired so that if you sing into it, it turns into a microphone that has this really distinctive, awesome vocal sound. And the, both albums are populated with a lot of BVs through that type of sound. And it was like, definitely gave the album a kind of characteristic, which was cool. So I can play a, a little bit of that. Yeah. And it, and it repeats, you know, throughout the album. And we, you know, there was definitely a conversation as like, are we, are we doing this too much? But actually looking back on it, it's nice to have that repeated sonic motif through all the songs, you know? Mm. Um, so this example of me singing into the NS10 now. So that's an example of that. And um, it has just this lovely old dusty quality to it. It almost feels like I'm, you know, that we're self-sampling. And there's lots of occasions of that coming through. And it, it just allowed me to sing more, but without it necessarily always sounding like me, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it, when you listen to the two records, you know, and we know of how important the live side is to Foles. And, you know, I'm sure I've mentioned this to you before because the two records both sound as if, you know, the band's just playing them all, playing all these songs all at once, straight to tape. I mean, and obviously it's not like that. But the difficulty of trying to capture that combination of, of working in the studio as just on your own and then bringing the band in and having worked up your ideas and then capturing those ideas and realising them, you know, that... that was probably the biggest challenge, maybe, um, combining all those different things to to get what you ended up with. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, like that, you know, that th thought that's why Syrups is a good example mm. because it shows within the song as you hear it as a final product on the album, there is the core idea um, from which most of the songs sort of usually evolve from like a loop, but it's embedded in. Um, you wouldn't necessarily know that then all of the human playing kind of occurred afterwards and that there's this tension in the song between the, the I guess the kind of the simplicity or like the purity of an idea when it's just sort of not been infiltrated by other members of the band in a way but but also that in us all working on something together and actually attacking an idea together you get to something that is a lot better you know and it shows the kind of tension, I guess, between the kind of the core idea and where it, where it ends up, and yeah, trying to also capture the actual the live energy, like you're saying, was definitely a challenge throughout the album, particularly when we were trying to meld it with things that were recorded quite statically alone, you know, without without there being any sweat in the room, as it were. Yeah, but it was uh, it was definitely a, you know it was a good uh, a good way of doing it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it, that it took a few goes in a way in that you went to Oxford, rehearsed there, then returned to Peckham, rehearsed and recorded there, then went to Paris um, and continued there, kind of seeking seeking the magic, seeking the uh, the right combination. Yeah, and things also, yeah, definitely just didn't work a lot of the time. Like, um, you know, one of the songs we'll be going into today, like Neptune, 
just became so huge. I think the session um, halfway through was 10 gigs and Brett, who we were working with, said that was bigger than his entire album that he made in the early 90s. <laughs> and that was just one song. It just turned this sprawling, huge mess. And definitely, you know, I think that made it more stressful but also allowed us to work on this bigger canvas. And it was in that way, it was probably the most ambitious project we've ever done in that we were committed to this idea of capturing the, those moments of inspiration that you have early on for the first time, really capturing them onto tape, but then obviously having to deal with the kind of the editing load of that as, as you then built on the songs and wrote them in kind of real time. Because, you know, like with Syrups, that bass uh, riff from the start we didn't know where the song was going, you know, when that was written at all. And so I think one of the big things that sort of characterizes this album is that we were kind of, we were discovering the songs as we were recording them um, in a way that was stressful, um, but also really rewarding because when we would complete something, it would feel like um, a surprise almost to us as well. Yeah, yeah. And wh where do you feel most relaxed, do you think? You know, are you most relaxed when you're on your own fiddling around with... Uh, the mini log or are you very relaxed when you all get together and you can kind of chill out and have a bit of a chat and and kind of muck about in a way i think that um in terms of being relaxed i'm probably most relaxed on my own with a loop pedal mm. uh when i know that no one can hear me we i lived in a flat for a while where i was looping in the front room and it was there were buses uh driving past outside the front window and i i n never managed to write anything decent in there because I just felt exposed and I need to definitely feel private and inaccessible and not feel like I'm being overheard in order to make all the stupid sounds I need to make to get somewhere good. Yeah. But in terms of excitement, nothing beats that feeling of the, of the four of us being in a room jamming something and essentially, you know, that moment you have, I think which every kind of musician knows, it, it, when you feel like you've discovered or happened upon something, you feel like an alchemist, you feel like a magician and that feeling of conjuring up something with 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 your friends in a room um, and something that can be powerful and endure when it didn't exist five minutes ago that's that's the best feeling i think that's better than the feeling of playing on one's own yeah you know yeah yeah and it's definitely made being in the band super rewarding you know i'd much rather be in a band than be like a kind of solo auteur which find like one's own company in terms of ideas just can become a bit even when it's great, there is this kind of solipsism to it. It's a bit, you know, it certainly can get stale. Or I feel like with myself that I definitely get bored of myself if if I was to be left on, alone for too long. Yeah, yeah. Um, but with syrups, I mean, we get the best of, of both of those things, don't we? Because of that amazing transition, I know. And and when I've been listening to it, I have wondered, how, how did they get that? Because in some ways you could stumble upon it in one rehearsal. Suddenly you do it right and it all falls into place but at the same time i think this is a great illustration of of how difficult it actually is to achieve that yeah yeah i mean i couldn't actually find the recording that we had a separate recording where we do the actual double speed transition and we became sticklers about that in the studio saying to brett like we've got to get it we've got to match up exactly like that and it did take a long time uh for sure but i think the the going to paris thing was the was the glue to gel everything together and just i think that you know being able to, particularly if you've been working a long time on a certain on songs in a, in the same space, being able to take them into a different context is important. It's like 
it's like taking your you know your children to the swimming pool for the first time or something like that it's like putting the things that you're familiar with and care about into it into an environment that is different and potentially throws up challenges and then seeing how they seeing how they react to that so like taking some of these songs to paris it was like will they stand up to the kind of um the criticism from the French producers, like what will they think and which bits will they attack and what's the song that we will then take home to London, how will that be? Yeah. Um, so that was really important. I think the next song, Exits, um, which I can play some bits off, was it was also a really good example of one that benefited from this multi-layered process of Oxford, Loop, Peckham, Paris, rehearsal room, etc. you know? Yeah. Um, having this kind of real build-up. Yeah. I guess also one thing I could say about this song, just the last thing I'd kind of say about Syrups is that because the song was in these kind of two distinct halves um, and the only kind of thread was is the bass line that goes all the way through. But um, lyrically, um, this was also one of the first songs that I completed for for the album. And there was something freeing about having the lyrics be able to work in two um, two halves so like the first half of the song essentially is from a kind of personal perspective laying out thoughts about the future and uh, sometimes foreboding thoughts and and then once we move through the kind of frenetic build and into the double speed section essentially we are in that future place where London is no longer populated by people but instead foxes are kind of in control and there's like this kind of decaying dystopian vision of London being laid laid out and I guess you could probably say like in a way that the fears of the person singing in the first half have come to pass in the second half of the song yeah and that helped me then write the lyrics for the rest of the album because I was like that just felt it felt right then the rest of the album could become itself which was to express these kind of fears about the future uh, that are now kind of you know some of which are becoming reality quite quickly I know. I mean, it's kind of uncanny. I mean, listening to the albums again ahead of our chat today, it struck me, wow, no, this dystopian vision <laughs> is being realised. You know, and the idea that, say, even within Syrups, you know, the, the foxes are taking over. Yeah, the foxes in my neighbourhood have got super cocky recently. They are literally having, like, <laughs> lawn parties out, and out in front of my house in the, at night. They've got proper cut, cutlery sets out and everything. No one's disturbing them right now. <laughs> so we're going to hear a little burst of syrups again uh, from the master. Um, I think we're going to go for one of the yeah. phonetic sections, and then, and then we'll have a look and listen cool. to exits. Great. Okay, we're going to go from the transition into the double speed bit. Yeah. think Yanis that Jack has a f- favoured pace um, yes he absolutely does and his favoured pace is yeah just, he just wants to always release energy and just go f- full throttle most of the time yeah um, you know in the early days of the band when we had a kind of more delicate song we would we would intentionally keep it away from Jack so that it would remain delicate because by introducing Jack into the room he just comes with so much natural energy and vigour that he can't help but push the song into a direction that is like this, as you can hear. So, you know, this is definitely like a jackified version of Syrups in the second half. Yeah. 
it's been hard to explain that to him sometimes. You know, he'd be like, why won't you give me this idea to um, and let me fly all over it? But yeah, his natural like vitality behind the kit is it will push it a certain way. Yeah. And of course, that is such an amazing part of the band, you know, that you wouldn't want to quash it too much. But yeah, it's an interesting thing because it just feels like with the second half of Syrups, he really gets to let go and really goes crazy. Yeah, you're totally right. It's like the band, particularly live, would not be what it is without Jack. And um, it's important to always keep space for this because the core of the band is something that is energetic. It's like we only discovered the kind of more tender moments later on in the in the career as it were like before Spanish Sahara we really had nothing mm. of that shape and, and and the band came about through a kind of physical presence so we, we always need to, to keep that in mind Yeah, so that was uh, that was the second half of Syrups, yeah. which is the band side of it, basically. Yeah. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. And we're going to look at exits now. And you said that you went through a similar process with exits as well. You mentioned the French producers. Can you tell us who they are? Can you remember who they were? Uh, There's three of them. Uh, So it's Vincent Torel, uh, Vincent Tiger and Ludo and they're also uh, musicians they're players so I'd got to know them through doing this Tony Allen session where they also doubled up as the band essentially um, but produced simultaneously so Vincent Tiger in particular is an incredible percussion and drummer percussion player and drummer and Vincent Torell is a sort of synth wizard and actually we're putting out bits of the making of of the album at the moment and you can see um, them in action 
but they had a studio in Paris. So there was a point at which we were quite deep into it in London. I think that we were kind of getting a bit of cabin fever and we'd lost perspective on, on songs. And also they just felt like they needed a bit of magic dust that wasn't going to come from us. So at that point we decamped to Paris for a few days and took some songs with us in a kind of um, virtual knapsack and then like opened it up there and then let them act as a kind of corrosive fluid against the songs. We wanted them to be attacked and that's what those guys did. And they did it through putting lots of um, things through distortion by saturating lots of tape units, lots of uh, modular processing of sound and then we also added lots of percussion through Vincent a lot of which you can hear particularly on exits right and so the, in terms of the virtual knapsack so you didn't bring your instruments you just brought what you had recorded so far and let them have a look at it yeah we just took the hard drive of the sessions no instruments they have a bunch of instruments there anyway but we didn't really track mm. anything out there we just um, processed sound that we'd already done and uh yeah so it was it was great i can um maybe maybe it's worth playing a very early version so exits was a song that hadn't existed in loop form at all yeah um this came out solely out of a out of a jam and luckily enough i recorded that first ever jam on my phone um and it's one of those rare examples of a song where the music and the lyrics kind of came about roughly at the same time so you can hear me kind of finding the lyrics hopefully in some of this so this is a recording off a phone on the first day when we wrote exits and we played this over and over again for hours and hours underneath the railway arch in Bermondsey um, and this is a little portion of that So when you say underneath a railway arch in Bermondsey, you mean in a studio that's underneath a railway arch in Bermondsey, not yeah. underneath with a road that you can um, everybody could see you busking no, away. No, yeah. It was in a rehearsal room, lots of mirrors on the wall that were a little bit off-putting. Um, but you can hear here the vocal line um, is coming out of the guitar, so I had it as a guitar part first, and then that became the chorus vocal, that guitar part that you just heard. I'm there sort of trying to grab onto a hook, trying to figure out what I'm doing as we're playing it. But you can see that the groove was kind of there on the first day and the rhythmic like basis was there roughly mm. and some of the hooks are there. And that's what became the pre-chorus eventually. And then we go, so there's the double speed coming out. So that's right. a dub, That's essentially the version of the chorus, but double speed. So that's partly why, as I mentioned earlier, we had to, um, we had to fight the double speed a little bit. So, <laughs> so you can hear that there. But yeah, that, that's literally the first day we ever, we ever played Exits um, or ever wow. wrote it. And it, thankfully, we did work on it a lot more before it got to your ears in, in album form. But you know, you can definitely hear it as the kernel of an idea there. Yeah, definitely. And and so what what did you end up taking to Paris then to for the Vincents and Ludo to have a go at? I mean, how much further down the line did this song develop? 
so what we took to Paris was largely an instrumental. I didn't really have a fully fleshed out vocal line, but we had, I think, most of the guitars sort of laid down. We had the bass, which was actually the bass. The bass is a kind of an interesting one because the drums and the guitars and the keys were formed fairly early on in the recording process in Packham. We could never get the bass to sit. Now when you hear it, you feel like um, the bass is kind of one of the bedrocks and it feels like it's emphasised in the final recording of the album. But actually the bass line only became the bass line in the last few days of making the album. So we had a variety of bass lines I don't actually happen to have to play you, unfortunately. But we had basses that were played on bass, on octaved guitar. Um, They moved around melodically, harmonically with the song. We could never seem to feel that it was the correct one. So we took um, we took the song to Paris, we added percussion, and then only after that did the bass form. And, and how we did the bass, which I will play now, actually. And we were talking a lot about Talk Talk and specifically about the song Life's What You Bake It. And I was talking to Brett about it um, and feeling frustrated that the song was lacking this kind of key ingredient. And we were talking about a chunky type of bass. I think also... I'd been sending some tracks to James Ford and James Ford had, had mentioned Talk Talk as well and actually was the first person to ever play us Life's What You Make It. But then we settled on the idea of trying a bass through a piano. We muted the uh, the the strings on the piano. We have an exposed uh, piano, uh, an upright, and Brett had his arm pressed against the strings so that the hammers were kind of muffled, essentially like a piano equivalent of palm muting a guitar. And then once we had that sound, we then the song, we were like, that's it. That's the identity of the song. And I'll play a bit of that bass um, so you can hear it on its own now. So that's a bit of synth, and then I've added the piano in there. Um, and that just had that kind of um, vibe from Talk Talk. If I play it with the drums, you just... that was the last ingredient to go down or to complete the song. Yeah, so I'll play. Um, I'll play what we took to Paris, which is essentially that without the bass. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear that, and then it'd be great yeah. to hear then what the uh, the Parisians did. Yes, I will play you what the Parisians said because they are—they really are wizards, those guys. And I think that the album would not have been as good without them. So here is um, here's essentially what we took to Paris, which is kind of like the instrumental without the bass. So we had a lot of the the sort of synth textures and synth details that Jimmy was doing. And those bits, those bits that sound like a marimba or something like that, that is all from a synthesizer. It is actually. It's probably worth us talking about that for a second because that was a, Jimmy basically played a synth part that then he looped back in through a line six and put through a pitch shifter. Or actually, no, but it, it was looped back through a line six and he played along with it, harmonising with it. And that was the other. That was the other kind of one big key breakthrough to, in terms of the song having a kind of sonic identity. Was Jimmy's Jimmy's loop that you can hear quite a, in quite a lot of the songs. So I'll just play a, a set. Mm. So once Jimmy had this sort of synth loop going on, 
we were just super excited about it and we just felt like the song had that had that specialness to it Okay, and that fill that we just heard coming in there, that was something that was added by Vincent in Paris. Right. So, yeah, so those were the kind of, you know, from going from the demo recording, which is essentially the song in its kind of crude, kind of melodic and harmonic structure, vaguely, you know, having a, having a sort of loose identity. It's a skeleton not wearing a suit. But then once we add in that synth loop of Jimmy's and we had the piano bass, that's really when we felt like, okay, the song has got some some spark and some real life to it that sets it apart from it just being another song. It, it's interesting that you took, you know, you went to Paris and you had everything apart from the bass and that that didn't get done until you returned to Paris. So you're still still hoping that it would be there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, we, we did have a bass in there. It just wasn't mm. very good. And we kind of knew it wasn't good. Right. I, we kept fighting for, for, for the bass line. But yeah, so... But it, yeah, it was strange that the bass actually slotted in right at the end without, you know, often I feel like if you were to introduce a new bass line to a song in its final stages, you could potentially destabilize the entire song, but for it just seemed to slot in. Mm. And uh, in the chorus, there are like certain kind of fossils of the old bass line in there. So I can, um, I play a bit of that, I think, because there's actually kind of two basses that start playing in the chorus where you can hear a bit of the the um the archive of the older bass line so and as you can hear like all of the percussion that's on top of that drum loop which you heard in the original demo was added in Paris right, and just gave it a lot more movement. So are you able to play us what the French producers would have heard before they did anything? So that, that kind of compare and contrast bit of what you brought them and then how they reacted to what they heard. Are you able to do that? I can to an extent. I'm set playing off stems where the percussion is printed with the drums. But in the verse of the song, you can hear that essentially just the drum loop which is not dissimilar to the original drums from that demo recording I played. But as we go in towards the chorus, you can hear the layers of perk that were added in Paris because those guys out there just felt that it needed that. And, and we did as well. We kind of went out there with the hope of that they would add this, this, this kind of um, this forward movement to the song so that it wouldn't feel stodgy. Yeah. So here's just the original drum groove with a bit of the keys bass. We can hear Vincent come in there with octobands. So that's Vincent Tiger. That's Vincent Tiger. Jack also was playing uh, some perk. The octobands were Vincent Tiger. Jack did that fill on Roto Toms. And that's the octobands going in again by Vincent. And a lot of the shakers were done by Vincent. Right. But you can see how it gets that kind of talk talk energy. And actually just as a rhythmic track, it's just awesome. Like, I mean, I, yeah. there's times, one of the joys, but also the, uh, the tweak outs of doing something like this is that you go back and hear stems and you're just like, oh God, the record should just be that really. 
the other great flourish of Perk is coming up here. This is a solo by Vincent Tiger. And then we're back into the groove. So the groove, yeah. the, the drum groove was mainly looped. And that synthy sounding part is actually me playing that riff on a distorted piano um, that was distorted in Paris. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing all these little elements. Yeah. And and that self-knowledge to think that, no, we, we need to talk to these people or get them involved, knowing that they can bring just something that you wouldn't be able to provide, which I, I think is, that's a really confident thing to do. You know, it's a decision made from a lot of trust as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Like, we, you know, they're, they're amazing musicians. And I think that, um, I don't, you know, I don't think ever before had we let other musicians... Uh, actually, no, I'm going to regret saying that. Um, we have had other musicians play occasionally on on false tracks, but, like, we had some, you know, we've had people play strings, but not have musicians that we've allowed in that come from it, from, um, from that angle that we let Vincent and the guys in Paris come in and kind of throw in these extra ingredients into into what we were making that just felt like it spiced it up a lot. Mm. It, it makes me think of, of bigger shows by, say, Talking Heads or something where there's suddenly, you know, dozens of musicians on stage and wondering whether you ever had a chance to get um, Vincent Vincent and Ludo on stage with you to do little sections like this. No, not fully. We've we've have had Vincent um, accompany us playing some perk at some shows. He did, he played with us when we did a session at Kew Gardens that was awesome. Mm. But yeah, I think that also yeah, it's probably worth mentioning that the Vincents um, came. They were they were all at the Conservatory in Paris. They're they're very like classically trained, but actually they're kind of mainstay these days as either working with um, Tony Allen. They were working with Tony Allen a lot and Umi Sangare, and they're very well uh, versed in um, music from Mali, Afrobeat. They have a, an array of African instruments, African percussion, and they come from, from that, or they understand that world very well. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's what we were looking for, was a kind of... Um, I don't really like the term world music, but we wanted, we wanted that kind of an, an ingredient or a, a influence to come in from that world essentially a world that wasn't London, somewhere that we weren't, you know, that's what we wanted was a foreign ingredient yeah. of some of some kind. So they were awesome at that. I think um, just for fun, just because it's quite a fun track, this in certain ways, I will play, so I'd like to play that key stem again that sounds that Jimmy did uh, looped up on the line six, Yeah. Um, maybe with the other keys, and you can hear a little fun little reverse guitar solo which was um definitely got laughter in the, you know trying that and people laughing at it at the, in the studio but then it but then it stayed <laughs> so but when i hear those bits that reminds me of michael rother from noi in a way yeah definitely i mean like um manual gotchling e2 e4 like we're big fans of i think with this song in particular we we could have made it more concise we could have stripped out more of the synths and there was a conscious decision to not do that we wanted it to be come in at kind of five six minutes we wanted it to be a chugger we didn't want to have um big dynamic changes either really i mean if you look at the session and if you hear the song there aren't huge dynamic jumps in it. It's kind of a chunk of a song. 
and there's lots of details within the synthesizers which were just little bits of ad-libs that Jimmy was playing uh, that we just thought had this great character and we wanted the song to be populated with just these kind of explosions of this kind of um, these small explosions of color throughout the verse and if you listen closely to the song there's lots of synth detail some people would probably say there's too much going on but we we really wanted to keep all that in because we didn't want to write something that was streamlined and pared down and lean we wanted it to be kind of a maximal experience and i think that this song is a good microcosm of the whole album project you know one one man's indulgence is another man's like masterpiece and we just wanted we wanted to allow ourselves to do these things that we had not been afforded the chance to in the past and one of the ways in doing that was to not work with the producer because we didn't have anyone saying no you know and i think that <laughs> we didn't go full prog which i think that we haven't really been given the credit for yet you know like um in the sense of a self-produced double album could have been a lot more indulgent than it is but at the same time we did get to indulge certain things which like like that another example of indulgence if we're talking about that is the amount of vocal layers so again all through the album there's a lot of layers of vocals and i will play a few just so you can get a kind of vibe of the actual the amount of um the amount that's going on in the vocals yeah that would be brilliant to hear all these vocal takes Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, I had, uh, here's a bit from the first verse. There's two, there's two channels of vocals. There's the lead and then there's the, the kind of affected vocal. But then I had some amazing female um, singers come in and join me on some of the choruses on top of already doing like the NS10 cone vocals. So here's a bit of just my vocal in the verse. Where you were born, tried to make no sound. We hard out cause they watch us and sleep And the language that we speak And the secrets that we Nice little bit of chorus on there in our dream. So that's the in cone vocal dream. coming in again from the NS10 in our dream. And that's the peacock vocal That's what we referred to as the peacock vocal Which actually is just me harmonising myself And I was thinking about peacocks you know, often what uh, Brett did, Brett had a lot of vocal mics set up all at the same time. And we would just try different ones out. So the main vocal often would just be on the SM7 um, for the most part. But then on other songs, we would tweak it. But when it came to the BVs, we would do the NS10 cone vocal. Um, we would do it at different ranges. So I'd move around the room and then stack up different different mics uh, w w to, to kind of get this feeling of there being an actual backing vocal kind of choir going on. Um. I said I'm so sorry to have kept you waiting round. I wish I could have come up, could have shouted out loud. They got exits covered, all the exits underground. I wish I could figure it out, but the world's upside down. I said I'm so sorry that the world is falling down. I That's making me think, Yanis, that... We need an a cappella album now. Yeah. Um, forget the rest of the band. We just want an a cappella Yanis album, please. No, that sounds great. I remember, you know, what was quite nerve-wracking about this album in particular was with the amount of uh, vocals that were going on, often the guys would come back in after I'd done the vocals. In most cases, actually, they'd been away from the studio for almost a month, and when they came back in, I was kind of playing everything. And it was quite a nerve-wracking experience 
for me, probably also for them, you know, like, oh my God, has he ruined the song, you know, with all of this stuff. And that particular vocal was one where I thought they're going to hate this, um, but they didn't. So that's, that's nice, isn't it? So I'll- yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And then we go into the chorus. So thinking of vocals, do you have a particular way you like to record your vocals? And then if you did that change when you were doing backing vocals as well? And do you want to be on your own when you're recording these vocals? Um, yeah. So I think, you know, most, most of the time I just use an SM7 and I like to be alone. I need to kind of be alone, really. I can't have the band around. I don't know where that kind of came from, but certainly since quite early on in the band, I just needed to just have some space to do it alone. I think there's so many ideas in the band as well that, you know, the danger would have having people around would be that they'd be suggesting things and that it would just be, it would become quite confusing. Um, and I think that more than any other type of tracking, like tracking vocals is kind of, um, it's emotional, if not verging on kind of spiritual in some way. And, and you just need to allow yourself really to, to be free and alone. In the past, often I've like had um, things projected on the wall to do the vocals. So, in songs like Spanish Sahara, I remember we had we had like uh, films playing on a loop. We had Kuna Scatsi on a loop and um, lots of images and stuff and like dark light. Um, with this record, again, I was totally alone. Um, often working on lyrics the night before at the pub, and I'd go in in the morning. I would purposely not edit any lyrics at night in the pub usually because I was kind of not in a state to be editing by the end of it so I'd wake up fresh with whatever stuff I'd written from the night before and then I'd go in and I'd try it out on the mic and then see what would sing well or not and then I'd build up the track that day maybe you have to write some more lyrics again the next night at the pub and that was kind of the cycle of of writing the lyrics on this record and I wrote all the lyrics on the record in about a month and a half and you know without exaggeration almost every lyric was written at the pub <laughs> um, which is also why I sort of was quite unhealthy by the end of the album but it was um it was quite freeing I found like writing um without without pressure I found like being at the pub meant that I wasn't kind of critiquing myself at the same time and actually there'd be other people in the pub garden. I'd have headphones in obviously and stuff. Um, but it was nice to feel that I was writing almost in a public setting. And I think that it helped push the lyrics into a kind of communal place where it encouraged me to make the lyrics connect outward. And I think that they wouldn't have been the same had I not been writing out in pub gardens and also not editing myself on, on the night. Yeah. And when you go to the pub garden, this is a solo mission um, on your own, yeah, solo mission, and you know you bat away any anybody who approaches. It's like no, I'm busy, or just ignore them because you got your headphones in. Yeah, the headphones is like the main deterrent. You know, I'm I'm usually tucked away in a corner. I won't go anywhere busy, really. Yeah, it'll be like a tuck, tucked away old pub. Um, I've got a few spots that I like that are kind of off the beaten track and they're quiet. And um, yeah, I just think it was um, you know compared to having written lyrics before in a room without sunlight under the pressure of being like, I've got to get lyrics done for this song. There was just something really freeing about being like, I'm actually just at the pub, but I might write some lyrics. And then the fact that I'd get to try them out immediately the next day, they wouldn't have time to sort of sit around and get soggy in my mind before hearing them back out the speakers. Literally the next day I could hear them out the speakers and then be like that, you know, that line's no good, that doesn't work. And I built the lyrics up like that. 
and then added lots of BVs and then played it to all the guys um, after they'd, they'd actually went on holiday with each other um, around Europe. So as I was doing the lyrics and vocals, I was getting photos of them like near Annecy or some like nice Alpine lake, you know, sunning their legs. And um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there was something nerve wracking about you know, them living with a song in a certain form, coming back and being reintroduced to it now, you know, often with lots of layers of vocals. I'm just now envisaging them coming back from their little run around Europe on holiday and saying, you know what, we love ourselves as an instrumental band. (laughs) Yeah, we like ourselves as an instrumental band and look at how good our calf muscles have got from cycling around Annecy. (laughs) So maybe, is this a good time to maybe build up this song tra- uh, stem by stem? Yeah, that would be cool. great. And then we can move on to Neptune, yeah? Yes. All right, here we go. So we're going to build up from the drums on This Is On Exits. Um, okay, clean drum loop. Some synth textures, interestingly, in the drum stem. Just something to ask Spike Stent about who ended up mixing the album. Right. And then we're going to add a bit of synth bass. Lots of bleed. Um, bit of guitar. You know, we've got stereo panning on the guitar going on, so they're kind of playing off beat with each other. And then there was a the guitar that's tucked into the mix, which basically doubled the vocal. And again, going back to that demo, the vocal line came out of a guitar part. Uh, that's often how I'll write my vocal lines, is that I'll, they'll they'll exist on a guitar as a melody first, and then I'll, I'll feel that they're better voiced by, by the voice. Mm. And then we start getting layers of keys. So we're on, uh, I've probably opened uh, 10 stems now. Lots of key stems. How many stems in all do you think on the track? How many stems? It's probably about 15. And then we're basically at the master now. We've got, yeah, so now we're kind of in the full track now. But yeah, lots of the synth stems, you know, are, are folded into each other. Uh, you know, I think the whole thing was definitely quite sprawling just by nature of how we'd made it. Um, like, we'll go on to the next track with Neptune, where essentially, you know, that song is kind of three separate sessions, like, melded in into itself. Yeah. Um, and I, I said earlier that it was 10 gigs. It wasn't 10. I actually asked Brett downstairs just now. It was, it was 50 gigs. Um, <laughs> so it was a beast. Amazing. How are we going to approach Neptune? Should we hear a little blast of Neptune and and then work our way uh, back into it from that? Is that possible? That is possible, yeah. 
Okay, so here is the final bit of the final uh, recording. Quite a lot of dynamic um, range on this one, uh, certainly more than the rest of the record. So it starts off pretty quiet and then it gets absolutely blistering later on. And it's an epic, isn't it? I mean, it's 10 minutes, 18 seconds long. Yeah, I guess we should mention that, shouldn't we? It's, yeah, yeah, it's quite... It's, <laughs> yeah, it's massive. This is from part two of Everything Not Safe Will Be Lost. So, and I remember when we caught up on the radio to talk about part one, I remember you yeah. telling me then, oh, well, we've got this really, really long song that we thought might frighten people if we put it on part one. So that is going to be part of part two, which I thought yeah. was quite interesting because it's almost as if you lured people into this double album idea. Yeah. It just always felt like the kind of... Um the perfect closer you know um it definitely evolved a lot over over time so it wasn't always 10 minutes i guess the full story of it is that it came from a little loop that jimmy had that is in the background uh, of all of the verses still it was just a kind of ethereal little synth loop that he had. And then I think I said that we should do something with that today. You know, like it was in the morning. Um, we jammed around with some other stuff once Jack was in the room and Edwin. Um, and then in the afternoon it was like, oh, let, let's play with that thing. Um, so we started playing it and Jack very quickly, uh, again, like kind of wrote the beat on the spot, which is the beat that you hear in the final recording. Um, and we didn't actually play it again, I think at all, um, if I remember correctly, we, we only played it that one day and we had this great recording of this 10 minute long jam of the song. And then we recorded like the intro in the first few weeks that we were in the studio in Peckham and we, we built up this lovely synth texture again on the kind of first day that we recorded it. And then once we had that, we kind of parked the song for quite a few months. Um, we didn't kind of flesh out the tracking until later on. And when we eventually did do the tracking, we allowed ourselves to have a jam. We essentially just kept that jam in the song um, for months and months. And there was discussion of whether we would edit it down. And then we never really did. And that's how the song kind of became as one hears it now. So maybe I'll just play a little bit of these initial synth layers. So this was um, done at the beginning. So you can hear Jimmy's original loop is in there. Okay, it's quietly in the background of this one. And then we tracked a couple of synths over the top. I'm trying to remember which synths we tracked. I think Jimmy was playing with an OP-1. Um, I had a Chroma Polaris. 
Uh, we did some tremoloed rhythmic guitar that kind of became part of the synth wash. Um, there's some reversed like guitar. But we were just in love with this, this ambient texture right from the beginning. We just kind of knew that the song was going to be great once we had this. I mean, I could just listen to that for a while, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a subtle piece. And, and as you say, I mean, it, it bears up to just listening to it on its own, you know, mm. without all the other stuff that then it's combined with. Yeah, and then obviously what that was later combined with was um, Jack's drum beat that was written on the first day, like I said, in Oxford, but uh, we put a big filter on it, which felt like the right thing to do. And it just had, like, right from the very beginning of the song, we just kind of felt like it was a closer. And one of the um, problems that having two albums solved was we felt like we had two closers, and so this could become the closer of one album. Right. Very clever. Um, yeah, so that, you know, that was the kind of initial vibe. I can actually play um, quickly the very original recording of that day I described in Oxford, I have a, I have a clip of that so you can see how um, similar it is to the album version. So this is us uh, playing it for the first day and the first time in Oxford. And then, like I said, we didn't really play this ever again um, until we, we jammed it, which was, you know, a year down the line and that became the record. So this is a song that w that's probably only been actually played like four or five times ever because we've only played it once live maybe twice in the studio, once in Oxford, so... Um, and this is a bit of the, uh, the Oxford Jam phone recording. Yeah. So you can see Jack had his beat straight from the get-go. Um, and I remember all of us being like, that, that you know, um, we were just excited how Tommy it was. We were like, yeah, that's, that's sweet, you're playing those toms. Um, and... Yeah, we just jammed this a lot. And I remember I had to, I I got the train back to London that night, and I just listened to this over and over again on the train. And um, I I remember n deciding not to buy a can of M&S gin and tonic for the train ride back. But once I was f halfway on the train ride, I was just like, man, I should have just got some of those and listened to this on loop. <laughs> Um, and actually, what I, the other thing I found this morning um, when I was going through the digital chaff was um, a little recording of just... This is just me and Jim messing around the loop before um, Jack and Edwin have come to the studio. I'm actually quite an obsessive recorder of stuff. So I, the Foles archive, um, even though it's really lo-fi, I just have tons and tons of phone recordings and cassette recordings. So I guess this is kind of the more 
This is the meaty, meatier kind of solid bit of the song that when you combine it with those ambient layers um, I played a minute ago, that's really where the song then gets its identity from, is this sort of almost cowboyish riff that's at the bottom here. And then once you add that in with the ambient wash on the top, that's what becomes the final recording's identity. So that's sort of that. Um, this is, like I mentioned earlier, this song is, um, was huge. So once we'd had this kind of initial recording bit of the synth layers, and I think maybe we had the drum track, we started tracking it over again. So then we had another whole kind of session going. So we had these two different Neptune sessions that then had to be Frankensteined into one, much to the dismay of Brett, um, which you can imagine. Um, and that's how the session sort of got so big. I remember taking it to James Ford and he just said like it's just ridiculous he didn't even know where to start with it it's just so <laughs> so vast you know in in one of the choruses I mean I'm looking at this is stemmed down already so not even just separates but there's nine guitar stems in the chorus should I go through those maybe that's fun yeah if you can do it that would be great okay so here is we'll go through the nine stems of guitars that come in at the chorus with a bit of drums mixed in Okay, we've got Jack's drums there in the chorus, and we're going to go through some... So we've got two guitars there, three. Yeah, one of the references for this chorus was My Bloody Valentine, even though I guess, more like slow dive, but like slow dive um, with a bit more metal. And then there's about six layers of keys in that chorus too. So before you know you've got kind of fairly epic wall of sound going on. Um, which then, after that second chorus, um, it just leads into this, this jam section, which is one of the things that we're probably most proud of as a band. Because um, it was just one of those magic moments um, that we managed to capture. And uh, it wasn't pre premeditated, it wasn't like preempted. We were meant to just play the song verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, and then into the last chorus. But instead, we went on this journey. I remember distinctly Jack like shooting me eyes across the room as we were tracking all of it live together and going like, you know, keep going, keep going. And then we just did this huge, this like big jam. And I think that that validated the entire album project because that's what we went in to achieve was to capture that moment when something magic happens and often you don't get to capture it um, in the studio and we managed to capture it. So that's this section. We edited, I think, one bit out of it where the notes were just frankly slightly too horrific to keep in. And other than that, we, we layered a synth and I layered some BVs, but other than that, this is what happened in the room. A great example of the chemistry of Foles in action. Yeah, and um, also Edwin on bass on this one. So he played bass a lot in the room when we were writing songs and you know, essentially helping to fill the absence of Wally 
particularly in the jams and stuff. Sometimes I would replay the bass for the purposes of recording, but on this song, it's Edwin all the way through, with very little comping going on. We had one big disagreement, actually, about the bass in this section, and I just loved the kind of um, effortless fluidity to the playing, and like he wasn't really repeating anything, and it was just constantly evolving. And I think that Edwin kind of wanted it to be better, you know, but there's better and then there's different, and it just felt like, it was just perfect as it was with blemishes and everything, so we just left it in. Good decision. And there is, there's a kind of meditative quality to this bit of this this bit of the song that, um, yeah, just felt felt great to keep it in. synth uh, that's just coming in now is something that um, Jimmy did on his OP1, I think it was on OP1, um, and that was one of the only overdubs that's in this section. It was nice to allow like a bit of the inner prints to come out as well with the guitar, so I definitely enjoyed that, and there were jokes at my expense, I had quite a lot about that. We've only got to play this song once though since the album because um, obviously we're not touring at the moment so we played it at the Shepherd's Bush Empire at a charity show for War Child and that's the only time we've played it so we're going to have to wait till next year to play it again. Yeah, yeah, I mean technically you should be doing this around the world Yeah. Um, this year. And this is definitely one of the ones we're most looking forward to playing so. I mean will you play the whole ten or more? Um, yeah we did, we did at Shepherd's Bush it was about you know, it was pretty faithful to the length anyway. Maybe not to all of all of the like chicanes and the solo, but um, the, the structure was pretty simple. And then it comes back in. Absolutely fascinating. Um, a couple of things we like to ask people um, with regard to um, how they got to where they got and, and where they're at mentally about the whole thing is uh, with regard to equipment and also advice. And uh, we wonder whether there are any particular pieces of advice that you've been given or that you would pass on to people involved in, in music and recording and making music. I guess that the advice that I'd pass on is kind of from um, from a kind of psychological point of view, which is to not be so precious about the end game. Like, so I think that when I was younger, I would um, I put so much pressure on myself and on on the band, and wanted everything to be perfect, and would try to drive everything to an end goal. 
but in in being controlling in that way actually you lose so much magic and i think trying to relax and allow there to be mistakes um allow there to be space and just to kind of ease up on the whole thing often you can it can be much more of a rewarding process and often the song can be better and the recording can be better i think uh, the other bits of advice probably like you know often i think uh, having parameters you know you don't need necessarily more equipment you don't necessarily need more time or more ideas often the more of those three things can actually be detrimental i think keeping it simple on all fronts is a good shout and i think um never start tracking before midday if you can is also a good one i think there's something just fundamentally you got to have a morning to think about stuff i just think it's not it just doesn't feel right to start working heavily on music like at first thing in the morning have a coffee <laughs> that's interesting i love that um and getting more specific do you have a piece of equipment or a piece of kit that you can't work without or that you wouldn't want to work without? Um, well, there's probably a, there's a few. My loop pedal, the, road, just the, the standard Roland loop pedal I love and has been kind of my mainstay um, all the way from being 15 years old to now. I'm almost 35, uh, so that's 20 years of being kind of attached to this one quite simple uh object but i absolutely adore that in terms of for more like audio heads um i love the germanium pre um that is just something that i, I just think it's a great pre and i can never get enough of tape units so whether it's an echoplex a benson space echo i think buying the physical object is a great experience i think if you can buy a synth or you could buy an actual tape unit rather than relying on a plug-in. I think there's something about the interaction with the physical object and with the history of that object that is just like, it just nourishes you in ways that um, just using something through an interface doesn't. So where possible, I reckon like hardware is cool and old vintage equipment is, um, there's a romance to it that I like. Yeah. And with regard to that loop pedal, I mean, when you were 15, um, what led you to get the loop and um, what, what, what made you think, oh, I want to use that? And, and is it used m mostly as a creative tool for you? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it provided a few things. Um, definitely creative. I think I was frustrated at what I could do um, on my own, like with the guitar. You know, I'm not the best uh, guitar player I know by any means. I can't really play chords. I'm not very classically trained at guitar. I often just play simple staccato lines on a couple of strings. And by having a loop pedal, it allowed me to build a kind of architectural, like layered sound. So it, it kind of allowed me to kind of shortcut my shortcomings as a player. And the other aspect of it was saving things. I guess this kind of probably ties into advice that uh, just recording as much as possible in whatever form is, is great. Like recently, and partly in preparing for your for this podcast, like I went over old recordings and there were fragments of song ideas that I found that could be great in the future and it's just like trying to keep that archive and keep uh, not allowing things to uh, be forgotten is, is, is important. The loop, you know, the loop pedal partly helped with that. But yeah, it meant definitely creative. It was just a creatively freeing instrument. It was very simple, intuitive to use. And I wouldn't have probably discovered it without Battles. So there's a band called Battles who... Mm 
got into that whole looping thing and it just yeah it just kind of it kind of changed the course of my life really that pedal wow that's interesting and and is it the same one that you use or have you gone through quite a few i've got a few but um i've got them actually all like at home so i've got the first one that i ever had i lent one to a friend recently and that i went through it just to check you know i'd like to tell him not to delete stuff and it had the original loop from birch tree and I've got the old original loops from for records going back 10 years. I've got probably eight of them and they're sort of stacked up various levels of tour grime on different ones, but uh, they are still <laughs> all functioning as well. That's the other thing is that they don't seem to break, which is cool. Yeah. Amazing. Fantastic. Um, absolutely fascinating, Yanis. Thanks so much for taking the time and doing all that homework and research to, to be able to share all these different aspects of these recordings with us. It really is very much appreciated. We normally play another piece of music, just a, a blast of something else. Um, and in some ways, you know, the the songs that we've looked at today, Syrup's Exits and Neptune, now illustrate one one way of working within Foles. And I, I know that for some of the other songs, you just kind of went in, recorded them, and, and they were done quite simply, weren't they? I mean, I thought it might be a nice idea to play one of those. Yeah, um, I guess a good example of that would be White Onions off uh, part one of Everything Not Save Will Be Lost. That was very quick, basically one live take in the room um, with a bit of overdubbing on the guitars. We put the drums through a space echo and it just sounds good. Fantastic. Yanis, thanks again. Thank you. And here is White Onions. This is for Hulse on Tape Notes. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Tape Notes. Until next time. Goodbye.